0: author Ed O'Loughlin is Canadian born and grew up in Ireland, moved to Ireland when he was young Has lived in Edmonton and Toronto and moved to Kildare and uh, has been noted for his writing he is a an, um, journalist and an author and his most recent book has a Canadian flavour it's called Minds of Winter Ed's two previous books, Top Loader and not untrue and not unkind were published in 2009 not untrue not unkind was long listed for the man booker prize ed welcome to the show here at home and abroad on irish radio canada and thanks for taking the time for chatting with us well thanks for having me on austin so you're a canadian living in ireland um out from the prairies uh, toronto experience and settled back in ireland Uh, What was your path and your journey that got you from here to there?
1: Well I suppose when we say that I'm Canadian it's it's, it's, uh, a legal status more than a uh, a domestic status. I left Canada when I was six and I lived in Ireland for a lot of the time since when I wasn't working abroad Uh, as an adult. I was a journalist in Africa and the Middle East for many years. but I still have family back in Canada, my mother and my brother both live in Alberta and it's always been a place which has loomed in my memory because you know, the places where you live when you're very young stick with you uh, and kind of grow in your imagination uh, in ways that they would not probably if you actually stayed there and, and then grown up there yourself.
0: And moving to Ireland, um, you, you Kildare, a uh, very different experience than would have been a uh, Canadian experience in every respect, going to school there, mixing with Irish kids, uh, integrating.
1: Yeah, it was a strange direction to make. A lot of people make the, the journey in, in the other direction. They, they go from, from Ireland to Canada, obviously, and many of your listeners. Um, but there's always been people who, for some reason, have swum against the tide. <coughs> my parents were... Uh, my dad was Irish, my mother was English, but she was of Irish parentage. she was from Manchester. They married in Dublin in the early 60s and they decided to emigrate to Canada. And, um, and I was born there. And started you know, kindergarten and nursery school in Edmonton, and then we moved for a year to Manchester yeah. in England, and then back to Ireland. And it was just a very interesting, but very difficult experience, going from the you know the relative freedom of and. Uh, The even-handedness of the Canadian system, um, going back into uh, Irish Catholic schools in rural Ireland, where things were much more regimented and and a lot of corporal punishment, and and really the kind of the um, the ethos of the school was about controlling the children, um, keeping them in their place, uh, um, which was a bit of a shock to me. It took a long time to get used to.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a brutal environment.
1: It was. It's changed a lot now. My my own uh, two young children are in a primary school now, and sometimes they complain about the way they're treated, and I say they don't know they're born. You know, the corporal punishment is gone, and
0: yeah.
1: it's much more child centric now, and much more about about bringing bringing things out in them rather than rote learning and scolding them. Um, but it was a big land then, back in the 70s. Of course, things were about to change in Ireland drastically, but there were still a lot of the old days about then.
0: You know, one of the things about the Irish town that probably may or may not be true about a Canadian town, but there was a, an author many years ago, Brinsley McNamara, wrote a book, The Valley of the Squinting Windows. And many Irish towns, you know, you couldn't do anything, but it got home before you did. Um, which was, is not quite the <laughs> Canadian experience that must have been an interesting uh, perspective for you to come into touch with.
1: Well I, I wouldn't have been so much aware of that because I was a child and you don't know um, you, you only know what you're going through yourself uh, as I grew up and I quite like that, I mean I grew up in Kildare Town which is you know, in, in anywhere else than what you call it a village there's probably only about three or 4,000 people living in it it had quite a large hinterland but, but I quite liked the uh, the intimacy of it um, although by the time I was 17 I went to college, I was glad enough to get away
0: Journalism was your first foray into writing?
1: Yeah, I um, studied English and French in in college in in Dublin and then I uh, did a journalism course for a year and started freelancing in Dublin and eventually got in with the Irish Times and they sent me to Africa. I spent seven and a half years um, working for them first and then for other people and uh, then I went on to the Middle East where I worked mainly for Australian but exclusively for Australian newspapers the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age of
0: Melbourne. So Ed, when you said they sent you to Africa, you actually went and lived in Africa for about seven years?
1: Yeah, I was based in Johannesburg in South Africa, but okay. uh, you know, the whole continent in theory was my, my beat. so I didn't see all of it, but I saw quite a bit of it.
0: Right, and that was where you acquired, I suppose, um, the knowledge base and the experience and everything, which led you to your first novel.
1: Yeah, Not Untrue and Not Unkind is uh, It's a novel about freelance journalists in in Africa. Um, I always try and tell people it's not autobiographical. It's written from the first-person point of view of, of a journalist who's back in the town, that's recognisably Dublin, talking about their time in Africa. And this person has been all the places I've been and had a lot of the same adventures. But uh, the, main, the main stuff that happens to the novel didn't happen to me, and my life wasn't. That interesting and, uh, and, uh, and picturesque, but um, yeah, that, that was. I really decided to mine um, my African experiences to get writing. I, I wanted for many years to write a novel, but I didn't know how to do it. I knew it, I didn't take any courses. So I didn't go that route, and I thought if I can just. Take all these very interesting things that have happened to me or people I know I can start trying to stitch that together into a, into a narrative which which is what I did
0: so in a way you lived vicariously through your own book um, I would say the opposite i'd say
1: I, I had I had lived that stuff and the, the book was a, a way of um, of turning it into something else um, it was just a way I really wanted to get writing and uh, I thought if I didn't have to do a lot of research, if I didn't have to worry an awful lot about incident and CIS settings because I've actually experienced that myself, that would make it easier to deal with the difficult stuff. And the difficult stuff is is actually just the pure fact of sitting down, um, you know, regularly for maybe hours and then staring at a screen and trying to come up with characters in the and a plot and just hammering out the words that, that make some kind of sense. That, that's the difficult part and, and if you can if you can kind of farm out as it were the, the research and, and all that um, to, to, to a, an easy source which was where I'd be myself then, then then do it and get that
0: out of the way Right so then as you say after seven years there you moved on to Middle East and that gave you the geography for book number two
1: Yes uh, I, was, I was then uh, based in uh, Jerusalem for <coughs> five and a half years um, Working for the Melbourne Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and uh, and one of the things that struck me, I I had to go into the Gaza Strip quite a lot. The Gaza Strip is uh, it's a small territory; it'd be smaller than metropolitan Toronto. It's it's fenced off along its borders with Israel and Egypt. Uh, You you can't fly into it. You can't take a boat in or out of it. Um, It's uh, surrounded basically by. But hostile military forces, it's it's run uh, by militants. It's permanently war torn, and you have these drones flying around overhead the whole time, uh, you know, during the daytime, often invisible in the haze, that are watching you and occasionally fire weapons that uh, that, that that take people out. And it was very much like um, like a science fiction story, except it was real. So I thought I wanted to write a book about um, how the Middle East conflict not only with Israel-Palestine but with Lebanon and Iraq and so on dehumanizes ordinary people um, but I didn't want to write a book about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it, most people have picked a side in that and, mm-hmm. and as soon as you start throwing those labels around people switch off to any, any other way of looking at things than what they already have so I thought I would, I would Take this, um, take this kind of view of, uh, of a real life situation and extrapolate it into the future and, and just call it the embargo zone and have everybody speak English and, and not have any, I would say I don't have any villains in it, but I only have um, one uh, possible villain and uh, the rest of the people on either side are kind uh, of humanised.
0: You were, the experience of writing a book as distinct from what you would have been doing as a journalist, two very, very different disciplines and two very different styles of writing did you find the transition from journalism to the discipline that you would need to say well i'm building a story and it's not going to be in 1500 words um with a deadline of six o'clock this evening a different experience and a different way of having to reorganize yourself it is
1: different i mean Particularly, I always work for newspapers, uh, daily newspapers. You, you, you actually don't need it that. You just don't need fear. You fear to make the next day, which is never more than two hours away. And you just put your head down in charge because you're blown it and you're in trouble with your ball. Um, you do actually have to have more self discipline to write long or four material, write material, whether it's fiction or non fiction. Um, the flip side. Is if, if the ideal way of doing it if you can make the regular time. But the flip side of that is that the, the writing experience I find much more enjoyable because I'm only telling myself I'm going to sit down for two or three or four hours and I'm going to try and write maybe 500 words, maybe words, and I'm going to get up and walk away. I know that when I sit down, and that time is much less stressful, much less, less pressure and you get to enjoy uh, the. Out of your head uh,
0: environment without these so then minds of winter brings you to Canada uh, you having been in Africa and the Middle East you uh, came to Canada and not only did you make a transition across the Atlantic but you also made time transitions in minds of winter and also in the whole subject matter rather than it being uh, where there was be it political conflict you're looking at historical figures and uh, an historical story. Um, tell us a bit about mines of winter.
1: Winter um, is set to a large extent in Canada.
0: When you were up north, um, you say you, you covered the modern part of it through your own travels, and uh, but you were looking back at uh, history, and uh, it's the riddle of the Arnold Two Nine Four, uh, a chronometer, and tell us. Uh, what what builds around this chronometer and what's so wonderful about it well
1: I, I, I figured out the book took many years to kind of uh, research and, and even just to work out how it was going to work and uh, I knew I wanted to write a historical uh, nested narratives about the uh, explorers uh, polar explorers, real life historical figures who disappeared uh, who um, vanished in the ice and whose deaths were not witnessed we can, assume, we can obviously assume their death isn't back but but nobody saw them go and, and I had this idea of well what really happened to them uh, let's try and preserve that mystery uh, but uh, you need some way to put uh, uh, these different time timelines together and uh, a few years ago it would have been uh, 2009 I think I opened uh, the Guardian and I saw a fascinating story the Guardian of London uh, about how the, the um, authorities in the Royal Museum in Greenwich which uh, is, is the Royal Naval Museum uh, and also the Royal Observatory had discovered a, a, a chronometer uh, at auction in, in this chronometer it was a Royal Navy chronometer one of several that had been issued to the Franklin Expo to the north with Franklin and his ships Erebus in 1845 but they didn't come back uh, nothing came back in one piece Many may before there's any idea of what happened to them um, but this this uh, was back in England it was In our practice, this chronometer travelling in time back to Greenwich uh, through the lives of various explorers that would be a uh, a standard that I could use to to link these different areas
0: together Fascinating, Fascinating. and in doing so uh, when you started researching that as well were you able to find um, what were I suppose um, Undiscovered or unknown um, histories relative to any aspect of this that you were able to then include.
1: I don't think I came across anything that was uh, that wasn't known before. Um, uh, one interesting thing I did find out was I one of the kind of the modern more modern strands I use is this, the story of the. The mad trapper of Rat River, um, this uh, unknown f- fugitive who fought a real battle with the with the Mounties and the Canadian Army Corps of Signals in uh, in the Arctic uh, in 1932, uh, whose identity has never been discovered, even though he was he was uh, eventually uh, uh, hunted down and shot. Um, but uh, while I was researching this, I uh, contacted Barbara Smith, who's a Canadian author who's done a lot of uh, good work on this story and who uh, did the research for a documentary a few years ago where they uh, exhumed the remains of, the, of this uh, unknown fugitive um, and did tests on him to try and find out who he was and, and got nowhere with that. Um, but she, she told me that um, she had unearthed a, uh, a report uh, a fragment of a report that had been written by one of the, uh, the Mounties on the, uh, on the manhunt uh, Giving a completely different account of what really happened to the one that was put out at the time and, uh, and hinting at suspicions uh, which, this, which this man couldn't form up himself, and also confirming that this guy, Constable Carter, had been sent up from Edmonton, not to take part in the in the hunt so much as to spy on the the inspector who was running it. So it was all very fascinating, and the kind of thing that writers love. So I was able to, to, to build that into the narrative, um, but I didn't turn it up myself. Uh, Barbara Smith did, and she was just kind enough to send me a copy of what she... Uh, uh, dug up in the, in the archives
0: So uh, the book is available in the UK, has has it uh, been made available yet in North America?
1: Uh, its uh, official publication date is 4th of February in Toronto House of Nancy Press okay. is publishing it separately in Canada so I would be, I am usually these things leak into the shops a week or two before the official publication date so you never know it could be out there now um, it's already available on Kindle and Amazon.ca, and uh, I guess in other ebook formats as well. But uh, it should be in the bookshops very soon in Canada, and then it'll be published uh, in New York uh, in March. So um, if you can't get it through the through Britain, you can get it through one of those, uh, th- those countries.
0: And I'm, and I'm sure that um, you're hopeful that you will be coming to Canada on some of the book festivals.
1: I'm hoping to come in the autumn, which I think is the main um, the main season over there. Um, uh, house of Nancy haven't found anything up yet, but uh, I'd, I'd love to get over there in the autumn or the winter, even better. But I think that that's after the season ends.
0: Uh, yeah, the, the <laughs> I, I, some parts I don't know well, having grown up in Edmonton, I suppose I spent some time there. You hard I can't find it difficult to believe that you would miss our some of our winters. Well, you miss what you don't have. I mean, uh, I think, uh,
1: you know, winter here can be, uh, a couple of years ago we went for a walk on Christmas Day and it was 18 degrees. Yeah. And that doesn't feel right either, so, (laughs)
0: you know, all things in their season. Indeed, indeed. Well, Ed, thanks a million for being so generous with your time and chatting with us. And Minds of Winter, uh, available in all good bookstores as and from the 4th of February and available on digital formats as is probably and you can find it at ed Um Fascinating and wonderful to, to have the opportunity to chat with you Thanks very much Austin And I've
1: just searched travel uh, to Canada because I just wanted to go to the Arctic in the winter and Canada was the easiest and, and cheapest that, partially because I could stay in virtue with my mother and brother. I launched myself north and, uh, and then having travelled up by train and to uh, Whitehorse, to the ghost city in Anuvik, um, I just so obviously that was where I shared that modern day part of the novel, because it made sense for uh, a large number of reasons.